Well, turn your Bibles this morning, John, John chapter 12, John's Gospel, John chapter 12. It's great to be with you today. I was out of town last week in Mississippi visiting my family and uh, uh, got to preach at my dad's church last week. And I had something I was going to show you. I was going to make a joke out of, but I hadn't There you go. Some turkey. I was driving real fast down the road, and he jumped in front of me. <laughs> Everybody needs a hobby. In case you don't like those that kill animals, it was a bad animal. I got rid of it, okay? It was a bad turkey. You know, there's some bad animals. My wife uh, was bringing some, uh, some things for missionaries uh, in Haiti, and she brought some boxes in her car, and we had two big field mice get in our car. So they're bad animals, and that's a bad turkey. So I mean, oh, the world's a better place if the bad ones are gone. Okay, that was not the way I hoped this would start out. Let me, uh, let me go, to, go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. And a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. And they shouted, Hosanna, or praise God, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Now, as we are gathered here on Sunday, if you would hearken back with me in time to the day Jesus was on the earth, this was known as Palm Sunday. The Jews had many feasts during their years. They would disperse throughout uh, uh, the region. They would come home, so to speak. There was one temple, and they would celebrate the Jewish feasts. And this feast was the Feast of Passover. As you recall, in Moses' day, when there was the death angel that came through, the last plague, and every house was gathered, they had to sacrifice a lamb, and they took some of that blood from that lamb, they put it on the doorpost, and whenever the death angel came, that home was protected. So they celebrated the Passover every year as a reminder, and lo and behold, it's this Passover celebration that has all the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, on Sunday when Jesus comes in, the crowd remember that here's the guy that fed us when we were hungry. He healed our sick. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He's an incredible teacher. But uh, uh, they would find that after Sunday, the Jews would begin to manipulate them. And the same ones that said, Hail, King of the Jews, on Sunday, come Friday, they said, Crucify him. But I want to encourage you this week to, to think of the events of uh, the life of Christ this week. On Thursday, you may recall, that was the day he had the Passover meal. It would be Thursday that Judas would betray him for a handful of coins. It would be Thursday night that he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane and, and have prayer for us and even prayed if it was possible, Lord, let me get out of what's before me, but nevertheless let your will be done. It was that night that he was arrested. All of his friends ran away from him. It was on that very uh, sleepless night he woke up the next morning to a trial before Pilate, brutally beaten and killed. He hung on the cross for a better part of the day. And then finally Jesus said, it's over, I've done my job. And there was darkness on the earth. And of course, next Sunday, we'll celebrate Resurrection Sunday. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you about the cross. Uh, you've heard it talked about many, many times, but I'm going to try to make a special application so you'll see that we're not just talking about a history lesson, but we're talking about meaning in our lives today as well. So uh, this morning, I'm going to talk about four things about the relevance of the cross to us. The first one is the fact is the cross was a predicted place. In other words, predictive prophecy in the Bible foreshadowed the cross is coming. Secondly, we'll talk about the fact that the cross is a place of ridicule. People will make fun of us because we're a Christian. Thirdly, and most importantly, we'll talk about the cross as a place of punishment. 
And lastly, we'll talk about this wonderful news, the cross is a place of forgiveness. But I want to show you a little video clip rather than me just reading the story of the crucifixion today that kind of embodies it, uh, and I think it, it'll speak to you. But it's the words and the events that were recorded in the Bible on uh, the day of Friday, on what we call Good Friday.
Wow. What Satan intended for evil, God turned into good. Praise the Lord. Let's begin. John chapter 12. First, the cross was a predicted place. The cross was anticipated and predicted by Jesus himself. John chapter 12. Jesus said this, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. Three times in John's gospel, Jesus used this phrase, When I am lifted up. The picture is of the cross. The cross, some types of crosses were like a T. Other crosses were what's depicted to my left. But the cross was not used by Romans on Roman citizens. It was too brutal for that. Nor the Greek citizens. They had reserved it for criminals. They deserved it for uh, the slaves. They reserved it for those they wanted to control, manipulate, uh, to control the masses. Oftentimes they would hang people on the cross. might take two or three days to die. Several oftentimes they would leave their bodies on the cross till they rotted as a reminder of the power of Rome and not to resist what was going on. Well, anyway, Jesus saw it coming. Crucifixion, by its very nature, was the most brutal, painful form of execution that could be imagined. And what we'll see today is you must understand that this must be married with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And giving His only Son is the cross. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish. That is, would not die eternally, be eternally separated from God, but would not perish but have eternal life. Now, not only did Jesus predict this, but Psalm 22, and here's what I want you to perk your ears up. Psalm 22, verse 16, a psalm that was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. One thousand years before Christ was even born, David wrote these words, but he wrote them not about himself. It's almost as if he's talking about someone else. And let me read them, and I want you to just envision this. It's almost like they're talking into all the elements of the crucifixion and when Jesus hung there. Jesus, uh, David said, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. Reminds me of the, of the Jews and the Romans. He said, they pierce my hands and my feet with the nails. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Some believe that the criminal Christ was crucified without any clothes. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails, literally exposing parts of the bones on his body. He's on display. People are gloating. In verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. Exact thing that we read in the scripture what the Roman soldiers did. Now, this is pretty amazing when you think that it was written uh, a thousand years before it happened. But it's even more amazing when you think of this. The practice of crucifixion as public execution did not start until about 350 B.C. The Medes and the Persians were the first ones to practice uh, uh, crucifixion. So what's described here by David is describing something 650 years before is even a public form of execution. And what that tells us is that how many know God knows the beginning from the end? God is a timeless God. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. How many know God knows things before they even happen? And it gives us great comfort in the sense that God is predicting things in the Bible and things are coming to pass. Now, if you happen to be a skeptic of the claims of Christ, very popular in America today, very chick to, to, to not really believe the Bible anymore. After all, that's myth, that's fables, that's stuff that uh, ignorant people believe, people that are not smart enough to have it all figured out. 
I'd suggest if you are somewhat like that, or friends are influencing you that way, or a teacher in school suggests that it makes more sense to be an atheist or an agnostic, I would encourage you one of the most vital and valid ways to prove the Bible is a unique book. It is the book, is the fact that prophecies were written sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before they came to pass, and they come to pass. Now, that's an incredible thing when you, if it was Christmas time, when we went back and we would read what Isaiah said about Jesus. We would read that Micah predicted the town that Jesus would be born. We read things like, like, like uh, the, 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 the casting the lots. We read about Judas's 30 pieces of silver, predicted hundreds of years before they happened. There was a professor, a science professor. His name was uh, Peter. Let's see, his name. There we go. Peter Stoner. Professor Peter Stoner uh, tried to show us the odds of only eight prophecies being fulfilled. Now, mind you, there's literally dozens that are very clear. Some people find up to 100 or better of prophecies that allude to Christ. But if you just took eight prophecies spoken by different people, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah, and others, David, you took eight prophecies written at different times by different people to describe the event that would be fulfilled in a man's life, Jesus. He said it would be one in 10 to the 17th power, which means nothing to us, but let me illustrate it this way. I shared it at Christmas and I'll share it again. He said, imagine that you took a gold coin, silver dollar, take a silver dollar and on one side, you put a big X on it and that marks the spot. And then you took that silver dollar and you mixed it with enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, if you just put one silver dollar in a bucket maybe a thousand would be in it. How many know that would be a great challenge for you to find that one silver coin on the first try? If you fill this room with silver dollars, it takes you, what, 12, 14 hours to get across the state of Texas. Can you imagine two feet deep, one coin, you're blindfolded, and you got one chance to pick it? That's the chance that Jesus, come on, would fulfill all these eight prophecies. Now listen, if you are somewhat skeptical of the claims of Christ, you might want to rethink this one. But if you are a believer, you should be rejoicing because there's other things that the Bible promised. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare it, I'm coming back to get you one day. Jesus said, listen, that we will rise from the dead one day. Jesus made promises to us that my friend will be fulfilled. And the first message of the cross this morning is the cross was predicted and it should give us great confidence as Christians that the God that wrote this Bible is the God that's the one that's going to bring it to pass. Come on, give him a big hand this morning. Mark 15, the, the cross was a place of ridicule by unbelievers. That is, the cross was a place where people were mocking and laughing at Jesus. Mark 15, and let me say this, friends, they mocked at him, they'll mock you. They laughed at Jesus, they'll laugh at us. Mark 15, verse 31, the leading priest, mind you now, he's on the cross. The leading priest and teachers of the religious law mocked Jesus. I imagine they told jokes about him. They teased him. They made fun of the way he looked. He saved others. They scoffed, but he can't save himself. Mind you now, they put him on that cross. They manipulated the Romans because they were envious, the Scripture tells us. Well, he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. And even the men, the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus, they ridiculed him too. Now, can I tell you, friends, the message of this passage this morning is that they made fun of Jesus. They're going to make fun of you too. And nobody likes to be made fun of. 
I can tell you that for sure. I remember when I became a Christian. I was 19. I had come out of a very worldly lifestyle. Back then, it was cool to have long hair. Mine was curly, so I had a big afro. And it was so big, it would, the hair would come out of my football helmet. I mean, my baseball hat would just kind of sit up like that. But I was kind of cool back in those days. And uh, I came to Jesus. All my friends were partiers. And I remember after I got saved, I joined the Navy. But before joining, I met a Gideon, and he gave me a Bible. I began to read it, and I realized that what I was looking for was not found in the party world. Come on, what I was looking for was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, I went back to my party with my friends. A lot of them wanted nothing to do with me. Isn't it amazing? People will like you as long as you got something to light up, as long as you got some money. Come on, as long as you got something to drink. But you wait till you lose that, and you'll see who your friends are. But, but I could just tell in the background people were laughing at me, not just the way I looked, but what I was saying. It's the same laughter you feel, the same snicker when you bow your head over a meal at school. Or maybe you're out at a restaurant and you feel uncomfortable because people are all around and you just simply bow your head to say, thank you, Jesus, for this food. And it's, it's an awkwardness that's there sometimes. You see, we live in a world today. Jesus even told us if they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. If they made fun of him, they'll make fun of us. And I tell you that, my friends, whatever we experience only pales in comparison to what we heard from our brother from the Middle East. A pastor who lives, listen, where they're not just going to laugh at you, but where they're going to brutally beat you. Come on. I hope that is indelibly stuck in our minds because Christianity is not just what we see here in America. Listen, the freedoms that we enjoy in America today, that's why the First Amendment is so important, our freedom of religion in America that's under attack, and you better believe it, because how many know some despot could arise to power here just like overseas, and the same things could be happening. It's a part of us. How many saw the movie God's Not Dead? Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Well, didn't that exist, this exact same thing that the professor did to that young student? And if you hadn't seen it, you should, and I won't give it all away. But basically, this young man, he's, he, he's uh, in, in a philosophy class. Uh, say 100 kids are in it with him. And this professor professes to be an atheist. And he said, let's just get out of the way up front here. Let's just get the God thing out of the way. I want you to write on a sheet of paper, every student, God is dead. Write God is dead, and we'll just move beyond that. And we'll just live in the world of reason and rational thought. And everyone did it but this young boy. And when it came time, the professor looked at him and got this kind of cynical grin on his face. And the rest of the movie is about the attack that would come from this professor against this young man that simply just stood up and says, I believe. I want to it's all around us, but there's a scripture that gives us great comfort. The scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to say this with me. It's the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to destruction. The same path we were on till God saved us, but we who are being saved, we know it's the what? Very power of God. Now leave that up a second. The cross is foolishness to people that don't know God, but for we who know Christ, listen, you've come to worship on Sunday, you, you, you give money to His cause, you read His words, you do these things because He's changed your life. You see, and you have a precious gift that we didn't just figure out rationally, though it's not an irrational gospel. We were, God revealed himself to us. He brought us to a place in our lives where we realize in our hearts something is missing. You may be here today and just there's a void that's in your life that I promise you cannot be filled by another relationship, by some substance, by alcohol, by drugs, by careers, by money, by houses, by cars. All of those things will grow empty and old, but we were created to have relationship with God. And the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is God revealed himself to the believer and the believer said yes. 
And the unbeliever either said no or has yet to be revealed. But I tell you, friends, the cross simply reminds us that he was laughed at in scorn, and the same thing will be ours. But listen, when they laugh at you, my friends, we should have pity on them. Not because we are better than them in any way, but you've got something very precious, and they don't realize the good thing that God has for them if they just open their heart and surrender to him. Come on, give the Lord a good hand this morning. These next two points, I think, are the most pertinent to us. Luke chapter 23. The cross was a place of punishment. Luke 23, verse 38. Mind you, we're still on the cross. A sign was fastened above Jesus with these words, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him laughed or scoffed and said, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and and save us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. He said, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? Now, this next verse, verse 41, is the key. And I want you to say this with me. Here's what they said. It said, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. We deserve to die because of what we've done wrong, but Jesus has done nothing wrong. Now, in every society, there is some moral code There is some legal code that describes right and wrong judgment. And that's why people appear on the front pages of our newspaper virtually every day. One or two articles are designated. This morning, I think it was child abusers. Uh, There was also an article about murder. Uh, All the time, people are committing crime. They're embezzling money. Things are happening that are crimes in a society. And what happens when you commit a crime is you deserve to be punished. That's the way it is. You see, one sad thing in American society today is we, have, we are redefining right and wrong in America today, and things that used to be right are no longer considered right. And it's almost as if the individual gets the right to make up the rules as they go. Uh, attorneys general across America get to decide what laws that they want to prosecute as opposed to fulfilling the requirement of their office to uphold their state's constitution. There's something, we're becoming a lawless generation in a lawless world. But there is a sense in all societies that things that are done wrong should be punished, and the person that did the wrong is the one that should be punished. And that's why those criminals realized what we did, we got what we deserved. Now think what he said about Jesus just a minute. Jesus was innocent and committed no wrong. This man said, this man has not done anything wrong. But yet he willingly chose to go to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross because 100 FBI guys surrounded him with guns. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was tired and he got outsmarted and they were all smarter. No, Jesus willingly went to the cross, willingly to be punished for crimes, sins that he didn't commit. And it's an incredible thing when a person is willing to give their life for another person. The Bible even tells us, it's a verse in John, and it says there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Did you see the Denzel Washington movie, John Q? That's oh, a great movie. If you can remove the political overtones from it, uh, the story basically is a dad. Denzel is a dad. He's a factory worker. He loses his insurance. And his 10-year-old son is, is a ball player. And this boy is, is running baseball, running around the bases. And before he gets to second base, he collapses. They take him to the doctor, and the doctor finds he has a degenerative heart disease. And in just a few months, this boy will be dead. And this dad faces a dilemma. He does everything he can in the bureaucracy to try to find a heart transplant, try to find money, insurance, whatever for his son, but there's nothing there. And that is a problem in America today. 
But I'll tell you, friends, he, found, he could find no care. So he got this plan. He got him a gun. He didn't put a bullet in it, but basically he was going in the hospital, and he was going to make the doctor literally take out his heart and put it in his son. Now, who would do that? I guarantee you, you wouldn't do it for anybody else. But if it was someone you loved, you would be willing to lay on that operating table, put that 45 in your mouth, bango, and that doctor take your heart and him put it in your son, and your son lives because you died. I have a friend, he's a, a Carney Lansford. He was a third baseman for the Oakland A's years ago. He's a coach now. But he had a son who was, who was born with birth defects and he was kidney problems. Carney was willing to quit his professional career and give his child his kidney. Well, how many know you can live with one kidney, but you can't live without a heart? And what Jesus literally came to do, Jesus came to take the punishment for sin. I want you to listen to me on, on, on this one. I didn't understand this in, before I was a Christian. I, I, I had a respect for the cross. It was a religious ornament, but that's about all it was. The Bible tells us this, and here's a, one of the predictions of the Bible. The Bible says that one day you and I and everyone that's ever lived on this earth is going to stand before God and give an account for our life. The Bible says that we'll give an account for every idle word we speak. The Bible says that God knows the thoughts we think. The Bible says that God knows the attitudes of our heart, and they're recorded in a book. And one day we're going to stand before God. It's called Judgment Day. It's Revelation 21. It's the great white throne judgment of God. And at that day, a person will be pronounced either guilty, and they'll suffer eternal punishment. It's a real place called hell. Or they'll be pronounced innocent, and they'll go to a real place called heaven. That's where Jesus and the cross comes in because sin must be paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is it's death. It's separation from God. Sin is a crime, and a crime must be paid for. You can't just gloss over it like it's no big deal. Uh, you're, we're watching unfold today in our federal government the lady that heads the IRS. They're trying to decide is she guilty or not, and will she be punished for targeting certain conservative groups uh, by granting tax exemptions. And Congress voted this week, at least the committee, that, uh, that she was guilty. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if she gets punished, or we'll see if she gets exonerated, or we'll see if it's all just political talk. But when you stand before God one day, there will be no talking about it. I mean, there is a real judge, and, is, and, and he is the Lord God Almighty. But here's the cool thing. If your crime is paid for before you get there, if your punishment is taken by somebody else, you will go to the right way rather than the wrong way. And see, that's what Jesus did, because the Bible teaches us that without the shedding of blood, without a death, there's no forgiveness of sins. A life is given for a life. Denzel's heart gives to the baby's heart, and the babies live. Jesus gives his life to pay for our sin, to take our punishment. Therefore, we don't have to take the punishment on the cross. All he asks us to do is believe in him and follow him. All he asks us to do is to humble ourselves and say, God, I've sinned against you. As a holy God, I've broken your commands. I need your forgiveness, and I turn and follow you. And he writes, cancel on the sins that are against us. Come on. He writes, cancel. Though your sins be as scarlet, I make them white as snow. He took our punishment. Now, this idea, uh, he did no wrong. But yet he died the death I deserve. Now, let me give you two theological terms, redemption and atonement. Stay with me on this one. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody in this room today, and I don't think we have to, any question about that. You might not have sinned and some, you know, murdered somebody, but uh, Jesus said if you have unjustified anger in your heart, it's the same as murder. You might not have committed adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So how many know we're Ten Commandment breakers pretty much every day? Don't say amen too loud, please. 
Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. It's a legal term. Declared righteous. Not because everything you do is righteous, but you are declared righteous. Remember your grandma used to say, oh, that baby can do nothing wrong. That child would never do that. That child is perfect. Well, that was clouded eyes of grandma. But in God's eyes, it's a legal thing to justify you by his grace, which is his goodness. And notice the first term, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, redemption means this. It means to redeem. It means to buy something back. Imagine if it's uh, tax time and you don't have the money to pay Uncle Sam, so you take your favorite turkey gun and you go to the pawn shop and said, I need some money to pay taxes. And he said, okay, he looks at it, and you say, I want $400. He said, all I'll give you is $200. And you throw a fit, but bottom line, you got to have some money. So he writes you a sheet of paper, and that piece of paper basically says, this is your receipt. You can redeem this item if you'll bring $200 plus some interest money back in 60 days. So after 60 days, you realize you made some more money somewhere and you go back and you put the piece of paper on the counter and you say, give me the gun that rightfully belongs to me. Here's the check to pay for it. And the guy says, you've done what's required. Take it back. So what you've done is you've bought your gun back. Well, that's what Jesus did. Adam and Eve, the Bible teaches, sold us over into Satan's power. That's why there's so much evil in the world today. God, Adam and Eve sold us into Satan's power. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's buying us back. He's redeeming us. He is paying the price. He's paying the penalty with the interest of the pawn, and he paid it with his own blood. It is the redemption of Christ, and now the pawn shop has no more right to control that gun anymore. Now that right of that gun belongs to its rightful owner, and that's what happens when you're adopted in the family of God, when you are saved and born again, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you become a child of God because you've been bought out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Now, there's another word, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. A sacrifice of atonement. To atone means to make amends for a wrong and bring the parties together. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say after church today, you have a nice fine car. Who has a nice fine car here? Let me see. I'm going to use you for an example. What do you got? Huh? A Jeep Commander. What color is it? You proud of that car? You love that car. So we're going to go out in the parking lot. I hope this doesn't happen. But you're walking towards your beautiful new Jeep Silver Commander, and all of a sudden, somebody in the spirit (laughs) backs up and smashes your Jeep Commander. And I don't mean one of these that nobody's going to know. Oh, that's bad. And you go up, and, and you stay in the spirit, though, of course. But what you want, you want someone to make amends for what's been wrong because now they're your worst enemy. They're your brother and sister in church, but now you don't like them because they've broken something. And the one that's going to make atonement is the insurance company. And the insurance company is going to say, okay, if I get you a brand new door, if I paint it the exact color, will that satisfy the requirements here? Will that make you happy? Come on, say yes quick. Yeah, sure it will. So what's happened is you were dissatisfied. God was dissatisfied because of sin. Jesus came along and he met the requirements by sacrificing his life for ours. He lived a perfect life. He took the judgment and penalty of those that God created that he loved. Come on, and we'll belong to him for all eternity. Give Jesus a big hand. 
Let me go quickly. Uh, Luke 23, I'm going to need an extra five minutes. Anybody give me an extra five today? All right, 1205, 510, 15, 20, 1225, 1230, 1235, 1240, 1245. I don't have that much. I'm going to 1205. But stay with me. The cross is a place of forgiveness. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say all morning. Luke 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha, where the crucifixion happened, they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right hand, one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, isn't that an incredible thing? The ones that sent him there. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Forgiveness, 1 Peter 2, 24 says Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. Once you were like sheep who'd wandered away, but now you've turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. Colossians 2 says you were dead because of your sins. That is, separated from God. But God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. And he canceled the record of the charges against us. And he took it and he nailed it to the cross. You see, it's my sins that put him there. It's my lust, my adultery, my greed, my murder, my abuse, all the sins that I did, and I am guilty before God. But when God forgives me, God... How many know when you erase something on your computer, it's not gone? When you move something to the trash bin, you can retrieve it from the trash bin. And if the trash bin doesn't have it, it's still in the cloud. And if that doesn't have it, carbonite has it. But you can retrieve it. And that's what the devil does. The devil wants to beat you up with condemnation because of some bad thing you did. And listen, I understand this. I did something as a late teenager that I was so ashamed of, I didn't tell another soul for 15 to 20 years. I was a preacher, and I felt so ashamed at what I did. Because I was somehow on a feeling level thinking that the trash bin and it was still there and you'd go back and get in the trash. When God forgives us, He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. Uh, uh, God forgives us like a chalkboard and eraser. Come on, the devil is up there writing all your sins, your cursing, your lying, your infidelity, your immorality. But Jesus has an eraser. I forgive that one and I forgive that one and that one and that one and that one. And when you look at the chalkboard, you say, where is it? It's God. On because God throws it into this sea of forgetfulness. The Bible says, though my sins were as scarlet, He makes them white as snow. And listen, I want to tell you today, Christian or non-Christian here today, when God forgives, God forgets that God has the ability to cancel the debt that's against us. And you're not walking around as a second-class citizen because you had an abortion. Hear me. You're not a second-class citizen because you have a felony record. You're not a second-class person in God's kingdom because you committed something horrendous, because you were violent with your children, because you were a child abuser, or whatever you just want to put on the hit parade. I'm telling you, friends, there's consequences for actions, but in the eyes of God. Come on, sins are canceled. Justification takes place. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to cleanse us from any stain of sin in our life. Come on, He's worthy of our praise. I'm going to close with this. Matthew 27, verse 50. The cross is a place for a fresh start. And I want to talk to you today because there's many of you that are here today, I believe, that need a fresh start in your spiritual life. For me, I didn't have a spiritual life. Well, I guess I did before I was 19. My spiritual life was going to church because mom made me, and that was about it. And having a Bible, and whenever I was in trouble, like if I was going home 
19 and I was scared I couldn't drive and I shouldn't be driving, I'd say a little prayer. You understand? Anybody ever been there? Come on. Most of the church today. And God would get me home and I'd throw the Bible back on the shelf. But listen to this. Matthew 27, 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, in their temple, there was, a, there was a big thick curtain, if you can imagine, all the way across the stage. And it separated where the priests, the people were, from the most holy place. And back there was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Indiana Jones, the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would come back behind that curtain. And he would come with some blood to atone, remember the insurance company, atone for the sins of the people. But he had to do it every year because the blood of goats and bulls was not enough. Well, the scripture goes on to say this curtain was torn in two, symbolizing that now people have direct access to God because of Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, listen, you don't have to go through another man to be a mediator to you. You, you can go to God in the midst of your troubles. Well, the curtain's torn in two. The earth shook, the rocks were split, and when this Roman centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Can I tell you what? That Roman soldier had a life-changing experience on that day. That Roman soldier was lost until all of a sudden he realized who Jesus was, and then he was found. That Roman soldier became a believer that day in the Son of God. Now, I want to tell you, that Roman soldier, he could have been the one that drove the nails in Jesus' hand. He could have been the one, and as he drove those nails in Jesus' hand, and we're speculating here, you think Jesus was talking? I'm sure he was grimacing and all, but you think it may be just possible that he just clenched his teeth and said, I forgive you. It's okay. Possible. Maybe he was the Roman soldier that had won the wager and he had Jesus' clothes in his hand. And Jesus smiled and said, you can keep it. I got some new ones coming up here pretty quick. I don't know, but all I know is this Roman soldier had a life-changing experience because of Jesus Christ. And it's the same experience that hundreds of people in this room have had today because they came to a place in life where they realized, like that Roman soldier, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he was the Son of God. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he took the punishment for my sins on the cross. I believe he's given me forgiveness, and I'm choosing to put my trust in him and following him. I'm telling you, friends, maybe you're here today and you need a fresh start like that. It's real. It happened on me to me August 15, 1976. I prayed for Christ to come into my life. I committed my life to follow Him. It was not an experience like going to the movie where it happens and you forget it, but I made a commitment for the rest of my life, and He has never, ever, ever let me down. He is real, and He changed me on the inside. That same change that happened to me, same that happened to the Roman soldier, it can happen to you, friend. And maybe today is your day where you need a fresh start from Christ. Jesus Christ, I'm just His intermediary today. I'm just somebody trying to point you to the one that can give you what you're searching for. Forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. If you're here today and say, Pastor, pray for me. I, I need to get my life right with God. For some that may be here, it may be the first time you've ever reached out to Christ. For others that are here, you might have walked with them in the past, but you just got away. I understand it happens. Whatever the case is, you need to get on track with God today. You need his forgiveness, and you're ready to get on the course for the right way to live, to live the life that only you can live through God. Let us pray for you. If that's you this morning, just slip up your hand real quickly. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to give my heart to Christ today. I want to get right with God this morning. Anyone this morning in the back there? God bless you. Give her a big hand back there. Others today say, pray for me. I want to put my trust in Christ today. 
I don't want to leave this church today not knowing that if I died, if I'd go to heaven or if I'd go to hell. Anybody else this morning? Praise the Lord. Why don't you just come on up, dear? Let us pray for you. Give her one more big hand. Come on up. Let us pray for you. Yeah, come on. We're not going to embarrass you. I want to give you something that will help you, help you make a step to Christ. And she's making her way up here. We're going to uh, have personal prayer as we close the service. We'll have one song and be dismissed. But if you're here today and you need prayer for anything, please take advantage of this today. Don't come to church with a big problem and leave with the same problem. Let somebody pray for you to believe God for God's hand in your life. Here's something I really believe. I really believe. God bless you, dear. They'll talk to you right over here at the cross. I really believe that when I was sharing my story of carrying shame and guilt for a long, long time, I believe there's many Christians that have the same thing in their life, and the devil beats you up with condemnation. I believe you could have an encounter with Christ and leave it at the cross once and for all. But whatever it may be, we'll pray. I want our prayer team to come around the altar right now. There's people coming to pray for you. I want everyone else just to stand. And as you're standing, we're going to sing this one last time. And they'll meet you here at the altar if you need prayer. You come and let somebody pray for you. It could literally change your life.